thing to do would be to um, put together a presentation using uh, different people for different topics. And the idea of the presentation would be how do you how do you transmit the information in, in the, the, the information that's necessary for someone to be able to move through a step or to understand a principle? How do you best do that? Uh, so, in other words, a lot of uh, a lot of the big book workshops that you go to, they're about showing you how to get a spiritual experience uh, or a spiritual awakening, working the steps. What we wanted to do was we wanted to uh, to go a little bit further and show you how you can transmit that information to others, or how certain individuals approach transmitting that information to others, so that they may have an experience. Uh, of their own uh, by applying uh, the information and the principles in their life. So uh, surrender to service uh, was the idea of surrender to service was born. The idea was the first thing that happens with alcoholics is there needs to be a surrender of sorts. We need to get to a place where our illness, our alcoholism, has softened us up to the point where we're going we're gonna to listen to somebody else, we're going to consider that there may be a way out of this uh, that we don't know about, uh, we're going to be open to information, and hopefully we're even going to be willing to do things that we don't want to do, that we're not even sure is, are, are going to work because we're at a point of surrender. We've usually tried a lot of different things by the time we get to Alcoholics Anonymous. Usually Alcoholics Anonymous is the last stage. You know, you've tried therapy, you've tried, uh, 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 you could have tried drugs, you could have tried just, you know, going cold turkey, you could have tried going on the wagon, you could have tried doing, Geographic, you probably tried a lot of things. You get in here, finally you surrender to the process. Well, after surrender, there's a number of things that we're going to talk about in the next three months. And at the end of this, uh, if you've done all of this right, the logical progression is from surrender to service. After you've gone through the steps, after you've had a spiritual awakening, uh, the whole book, Alcoholics Anonymous, leads you to a point where you are more interested in uh, in others, hopefully, than you are in yourself. You're, you're more uh, you're more attuned to giving than you are receiving, and that's uh, that's ultimately where we want to get to. Another thing that came to me uh, as I was thinking about how to set up this uh, this workshop was. Um, I knew uh, a little bit of history in the beginning would probably be very helpful to people. Because if you're anything like me, you came in and you got fellowshipped when you came to AA. You got fellowshipped and you were told just don't drink no matter what, even if your ass falls off and keep coming to meetings. And you know what? You could have robbed the bank today, but if you did it sober, you're a winner. Okay, so you probably got fellowshipped and uh, you probably need a little bit of softening up to uh, to to uh, uh, consider uh, uh, some of the things that we're going to present. Now there's there's 12 presenters. They're all awesome people. Uh, the the first one is going to be uh, Barefoot Bill here, and 
I'm not exaggerating when I'm saying this. If there, if there's, uh, if there is a top five in the world AA historians, um, Bill is one of them. So uh, it's 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 really really a privilege to to have him start off this uh, this seminar talking about early 12-stepping history. What did they do in the early days? What are some of the things that worked? What are some of the things that didn't work? What are some of the crazy things that they did? Because I know him, he's going to make it interesting. And uh, without further ado, what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn tonight's meeting over uh, to my friend Barefoot Bill, and he's going to talk a little bit about uh, some of the interesting history that's uh, part of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Bill Lash. I am an alcoholic. Hey, Bill. Chris, last year you said I was a top three historian. I, I dropped down there. No, I'm just kidding. As I was sitting here listening to him with his compliments, I was thinking, top 50, it doesn't matter. None of us get any money for it. Um, there's two things I want to open with, and then I want to get into some of my notes and the stories. And I'm not a traditional AA history person, uh, you're not going to hear much about the first five or ten people, you're not going to hear about the Rockefellers, and uh, that's sort of a traditional talk, and I'm not in the least bit traditional, so uh, that stuff doesn't really so much interest me, I could rattle it off from the top of my head, but it's not interesting, I like um, interesting is this feedback or something? I like um, interesting uh, human interest stories, so uh, hopefully I'll share some of those with you. Uh, Chris had asked when we did this back in March to also talk about early sponsorship and 12-step uh, techniques, and uh, I've found early pamphlets basically uh, exclusively on sponsorship what to do and how to do it, so I'll share some of those also. Uh, but um, when I first got into history, it was sort of indirectly. Basically, I had been around the, I was fellowshipping, which is a new word I never heard. Uh, I was being fellowshipped for three and a half years, and uh, I started wanting to kill myself, or I might as well just drink, because this is what it's going to be like. This sucks. Uh, that was my experience. I went to a lot of meetings. I made a lot of coffee. I picked up a lot of ashtrays. I, I put away a lot of chairs. I went to a lot of diners. I went to a lot of conferences. I went to a lot of dances. And uh, I was still dying from the mental, psychological, emotional, and spiritual aspects of alcoholism because I hadn't even touched it yet. I had physically stopped drinking, but that was as far as it had gone. I was still lying and cheating and scamming and doing whatever I wanted to do and manipulating and all of that. And I was slowly dying on the inside. And uh, I got into the big book uh, through a series of circumstances, uh, none of which I think are coincidences. But as I went through the big book and got into the process and my inner life started changing, in reading the stories in the big book, you know, I heard about these mystical cartoon characters that are mentioned all throughout. As far as I knew, they were made up imaginary cartoon creatures, uh, you know, Eddie, Bill, Bob, I mean, 
no idea who they're talking about. Uh, could have been totally made up. I had absolutely no idea. And uh, a bunch of people from my home group decided to go out to Stepping Stones in Bedford Hills, New York. And once a year they have a picnic. And uh, when I arrived at the house, and I went upstairs to the second floor of the house where they had pictures of everybody, I was just, it just came alive for me. Because um, here I am, I'm in this guy's house. Here I am looking at this person's face. These people I've been hearing about now all of a sudden became very real and became very um, interesting to me that uh, in looking at the history, it's really obvious that these people were not capable of doing what they did because on, so, on, on some level, some of them were, um, were uh, you know, bigger manipulators than I had ever been. Uh, and they weren't capable of doing what they did without the X factor called God. So that is when it all kind of began for me um, in getting involved in history. Now, I always like starting and ending with my two favorite stories, so let me start with uh, the Clarence Snyder story. Uh, Clarence, uh, or Clarence S. Um, Clarence is one of my favorite early AA characters, if not the favorite early AA character. Uh, in the early days, uh, they used to call it fixing drunks. Uh, literally, some wives and people's families would put somebody on a train and say, I hear this guy, Dr. Bob in Akron, is fixing drunks. So here's a one-way ticket to Akron. Go see if he can fix you, and if he doesn't, don't come back. I mean, they literally would give you a one-way ticket and figure it out. You know, this is your last chance. We're not dealing with you anymore. Uh, don't come back if it doesn't work. And Clarence is put on a train. Uh, he arrived in Akron. He walked up to the hospital that he was told to go to. He went to the office of Dr. Bob, Dr. Robert Holbrook-Smith. Um, but the door was closed, and, and Dr. Bob wasn't there yet. So Clarence paced back and forth in front of the Dr. Bob's office, and he kept looking at the door, and, and the door said, Dr. Robert Holbrook-Smith, proctologist. And he thought to himself, that's a cure I haven't tried yet. And... Uh, uh, from when he tells the story, uh, it seems like a lot of people had experienced that, that, you know, what is this doctor going to do to me? You know, he's, he, you know, proctologist. He was a rectal surgeon, you know what I mean? Like, what, what, what is this all about, you know? This is a new form of uh, recovery from alcoholism. But um, the early days were very different. Uh, what's interesting is, is that the collected experience that went into the writing of the big book the average person in those four years in AA did more 12-step work than the average person today will do in their lifetime. I mean, these people were go-getters. These people were desperately seeking people to help in no uncertain terms. Uh, the enthusiasm and the, the stories and the uh, stick to that they had uh, then, you know, a lot of us have it today still, but... You know, it's just an amazing story listening to the to the going to any lens that they were willing to go to back in those days. Um, as I was looking over my notes today, I started thinking about the Washingtonians. You know, we, we hear about the Washingtonians. The Washingtonians was a, a temperance movement that is sort of one of the earliest or, or the earliest successful group of people in dealing with alcoholics. The Washingtonians began uh, 1940 by these six gentlemen who were drinking in a bar. Uh, and 
they started talking amongst themselves, saying, you know, we have to do something about this. We're all alcoholics. We all have a problem with alcohol. There's so many people that need help. We need to band together and, and help ourselves and maybe help some other people. And uh, uh, how I know that these people were alcoholics was that the first meeting that they had, which was in the bar that they used to meet at, uh, the six originating members of the six originating members only five showed up that night and when they took a vote to decide who was going to be president of the society the one gentleman who didn't show up that day was voted in as the president of the society and for me that proves that they were alcoholics because that's the kind of things that we do you know we volunteer people in who aren't there to defend themselves or deny it um what's also interesting is is that uh, the Washingtonian or Washington Temperance Society was selected in honor of George Washington and that strangely enough they continued to meet for a number of weeks at their custom place which was Chase's Tavern until the tavern owner's wife objected to the increased loss of their best customers. Uh, basically the Washingtonians was a temperance movement. Uh, part of their downfall was that there was no singleness of purpose and there was no exclusivity of we only deal with alcoholics anybody that would sign a piece of paper saying that i'm not going to drink was allowed into their society so there was no singleness of purpose and there was no exclusivity of membership um, some of the similarities or rather their success rate was kind of interesting because within five years from 19 from 1840 to 1845 they had an estimated 500,000 members now again remember that uh, a percentage of that was not alcoholics, but those are some pretty significant numbers. Um, and what's interesting is, if you look at our history, the big book was written four years after our fellowship started. We only had 100. So these people were significantly, um, I don't want to say attacking, but significantly uh, you know, racing across the country, uh, getting people to sign pledges, uh, some of which were alcoholics that didn't drink for a period of time. But, you know, in five years, they were highly, incredibly successful to the point where Abraham Lincoln told a um, campaign speech for presidency at one of their meetings. They were so big and so influential that President uh, Lincoln came, or, or Abraham Lincoln came and spoke in front of them as part of his campaign to become president. And within five years after that, the Washingtonians were basically unheard of. Uh, some of the similarities with AA is that uh, with the Washingtonians, alcoholics helped each other. Uh, with the Washingtonians, there was uh, the, uh, the needs and the interests of the alcoholic were kept central, even though there was mixed membership by the predominance of member control and the enthusiasm of the movement. Uh, like AA, they had weekly meetings. Like AA, they shared their experiences at those meetings. Uh, the fellowship of a group or its uh, members uh, were constantly available for help for anybody that needed it, whether there was a meeting going on at the time or not. There was a reliance upon the power of God, and they were encouraged to uh, participate in total abstinence from alcohol. So those are some of the similarities that they had with AA. And here's some of the reasons why the Washingtonians fell apart. The major cause for the decline of the Washingtonian movement was its lack and opposition to religion. The second thing that uh, caused its downfall was there was no exclusive alcoholic membership. Again, if you signed a pledge that you were never going to drink again, whether you were an alcoholic or not, you could join. There was no singleness of purpose, and uh, they got involved with outside issues like, you know, religion was mentioned before, uh, the slavery issue they got involved in, and the wet-dry controversy of whether people should be allowed to drink or not. So they, they kind of had an opinion on a few outside issues.
we don't really care what non-alcoholics do, really. Uh, as long as they go to Al-Anon. No, I'm just kidding. Um, there was no anonymity to keep the public from being aware of broken pledges or to keep individuals from exploiting the movement for prestige and fame. So there was no anonymity involved. They had no understanding of alcoholism other than the possibility of recovery through love and sympathy. Their approach to the problem of alcoholism and alcohol was moralistic rather than psychological and therapeutic, and they possessed no program for personality change. They just kind of, basically, they just won it. You know, sign a pledge, and they really didn't do much more beyond that, except have weekly meetings and talk amongst themselves. There was far too great a reliance upon pledge to not drink and not enough appreciation of the other elements of the program. Work with other alcoholics was not required, nor was the therapeutic value of this work explicitly recognized. They just kind of saw it as take it or leave it. There was not enough understanding of their own program to formulate it and thus help the new groups to establish themselves on a sound and somewhat uniform basis. So all kinds of different theories kind of broke out throughout the country of, you know, what was actually a Washingtonian group. Um, and those are just some similarities and, and things that happened with the Washingtonians. What ended up happening was in the early 1940s, Bill Wilson was given a book about the Washingtonians. And it was at that time that he started seeing a lot of similarities of the downfall of the Washingtonians starting to happen in AA. And that was what uh, drove him toward the point of coming up with the 12 traditions, which actually saved us uh, in regard to some of the practices that were going on, some of which I'm going to touch upon tonight. Now, to begin with um, the 12-step work of the early days, something I always like pointing out in regard to the big book is that ABT didn't ask for help. All of a sudden, Roland, Sebra, and Shep show up in court and start helping him. Bill W. didn't ask for help. All of a sudden, Eddie showed up and started helping him. Dr. Bob didn't ask for help. All of a sudden, Bill showed up and started helping him. Uh, Bill D, AA number three, didn't ask for help. All of a sudden, Bill and Bob showed up and started helping him. Uh, as far as I've seen in the history and how I practice the 12 steps today is that I don't help people because they're sick. I help people because I'm sick and I need to be helping people because that's part of my recovery. Um, that's sort of a little bit of a different angle on what happens at meetings because uh, in those days, again, you needed to be working with people, so you pursued them, so to speak. And then if, if they didn't really want to do the process or they didn't want to do the work, then you would just find somebody else to work with. But it's very different than how sort of it is today where, you know, you just give me, you give somebody your phone number and you expect them to call and you expect them to kind of pursue you. Back in those days, and how I like practicing it today and how some people here practice it, is that we pursue them, let them know what going to any lengths is. And then at that point, if they're not willing to go to any lengths, then perhaps we can leave the door open in case they want help for later on and that we can uh, then find somebody else who's willing to go to Alliance because there's certainly plenty of those people out there. Um, I wanted to touch upon uh, Bill's actual first step. Um, this is kind of interesting. Um, I had a few years ago been sent early drafts of the big book um, in one case, it's a very early draft of Bill's story, and then there's sort of a, a second early draft 
that was uh, there is a solution followed by Bill's story, which was the original idea of how they wanted it to be formatted in the book, instead of the other way around, the way it ended up in the book, where it's Bill's story and then there is a solution. And in the first earliest draft of Bill's story, actually it's about 28 pages long, uh, as opposed to the 16 pages that ended up in the big book, and it's significantly different than the way it ended up in the big book. And in this first draft, let me call it, because I don't know if it's the first draft, but it's the earliest draft I've ever been able to find. He mentioned specifically how he did a four-step. And remember, this was still in the Oxford group days, so basically he did sort of a, a, an inventory that the Oxford group used to do. But far along, you notice the different um, aspects of the four-step that Bill actually did uh, in practice. It says, the following is a portion of an early draft of Bill's story in the big book. It describes how Eddie explained to Bill W. in 1934 uh, to write his searching and fearless moral inventory, what we now call step four, which later became the 12-step program. Bill said the following, I should next prepare myself for God's company by taking a thorough and ruthless inventory of my moral defects and derelictions. This I should do without any reference to other people and their real or fancied part of my shortcomings should be rigorously excluded. Where had I failed is the prime question. I was to go over my life from the beginning and ascertain in the light of my own present understanding where I had failed as a complete moral person. Above all things, in making this appraisal, I must be entirely honest with myself. As an aid to thoroughness and as something to look at when I go through, when I go through, I might use pencil and paper. First take the question of honesty. Where and how and with whom had I ever been dishonest? And I think this is kind of interesting because it's saying, go back to the date of your birth and, and start inventorying. Uh, with respect to anything, where have I ever been dishonest with respect to anything? What attitudes and actions did I still have which were not completely honest with God, with myself, and with another person? I was warned, not, I was warned that no one can say that he is a completely honest person. That would be superhuman and people aren't that way. Nor should I be misled that the thought of how honest I am in some in some particulars. I was too ruthless, I was to ruthlessly tear out of the past all of my dishonesty and list them in writing. Next, I was to explore another area somewhat related to the first and, co and commonly a very defective one in most people. I was to examine my sex conduct since infancy. Bill <laughs> started early. No, I'm just kidding. Um, since infancy and rigorously compared with what I thought that conduct should have been. My friend explained to me that people's ideas throughout the world on what constitutes perfect sex conduct varies greatly. Consequently, I was not to measure my defects in this particular by adopting any standard of easy virtue as a measuring stick. I was merely to ask God to show me the difference between right and wrong in this regard and ask for help and strength and honesty in cataloging my defects according to the true dictates of my own conscience. Then I might take up the related questions of greed, selfishness, and thoughtlessness. How far and in what connection had I strayed, and was I straying in these particulars? I was assured I could make a good long list if I get honest enough and vigorous enough. Then there was the question of real love in all of my fellows, including my family, my friends, and my enemies. Had I been completely living toward all of these at all times and places? If not, down in the book it must go, and of course, everyone could put plenty down along that line. My friend pointed out that resentment, self-pity, fear, inferiority, pride, and egotism were attitudes which distorted one's perspective and usefulness 
to entertain such sentiments and attitudes was to shut oneself off from God and people about us. Therefore, it would be necessary for me to examine myself critically in this respect and write down my conclusions. So, uh, there's some things from the big book in there, but uh, this is actually how uh, Bill ended up doing the work uh, the first time that he did it. Uh, something I thought was interesting, I just recently uh, came upon this, and for me this was kind of shocking, even though it's strange, because it wasn't that surprising to me, but on another level it was kind of shocking. Consider these facts. When the big book started to be written, there were only 40 AA pioneers. There were 68 to 72 people who ever attended a meeting, and 12 to 18 people with more than one year when the big book came out. Now, uh, the rationale was that at the, at the rate that newcomers were coming in, there would be 100 by the time that the big book was published. Also, there were only two meetings when the big book came out, and that was Akron, Ohio, and New York City. And a couple months later, a third meeting started in Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, for me, that was kind of interesting because, I mean, when Bill started writing the big book, he had a little over three years. And, and think about if, if you yourself, with three years, would try to write a book that ended up in this way. And of course, he had the help of lots of people, but, you know, for me, again, that just shows, you know, the hand of God being involved in this because, again, these people were not capable of doing what they did. Now, here's a, um, here's a little 12-step story. Uh, there was a man named Bob who was brought to the program just as he was about to do himself in. A few days later, Bob went on a 12-step call with Walter C. The prospect they went to visit listened to them and said, what you have to say is very interesting, but I don't think it's for me. However, I have a friend whose brother could really use your help. Who is he, asked Bob. I don't know his name, but his sister's name is Edith M. Well, that's my sister, said Bob, who had just been advised to make a 12-step call on himself. To give you some idea of the dangers involved with working with women in the early days, Oscar W. recalls the first man killed on a 12-step call. Uh, it says that he called, uh, he called on a, a female AA after her husband had left for work, says Oscar. The neighbors saw this and told her husband. One night, the husband lay in the weeds outside the house waiting for the guy, and when the AA came along to take the woman to a meeting, the husband uh, shot him with a shotgun. This was in upstate New York, and it was said that they named the club after the fellow who had died. Um, I, I, I hope that never happens to me. Um, now, this is uh, the first pamphlet. This is uh, the Akron pamphlet. This actually was sort of a sponsorship. This is called a Manual for Alcoholics Anonymous. It's sort of a sponsorship pamphlet that came out in 1940 in Akron. I'm just going to give you some of the highlights. I'm not going to go over the whole thing. None of the pamphlets I'm going to go over in their entirety, but I'm just going to highlight some of the more interesting things that apply to just sort of general information and sponsorship and 12-step work and stuff like that. Like I said, this is called the Manual for Alcoholics Anonymous, the Akron Manual, 1940. This little book was written and being distributed with one year of the publication of the big book, which would date back to 1940. We must assume that Dr. Bob himself and, prob and probably Sister Ignatia, too, gave their approval to the statements made in this little book. This is what the these are some of the highlights of the pamphlet. This pamphlet assumes hospitalization at St. Thomas Hospital under the care of Sister Ignatia and the overall supervision of Dr. Bob as a normal first step in recovery. Because again, you know, we were dealing with low bottom drugs, especially in the beginning. So uh, detoxification was really 
mandatory because uh, detoxification from alcohol you could die from. Uh, detoxification from drugs is a little bit different. Uh, you could die if maybe you're, you're twitching and you hit your head on a pole or something, but the detoxification from drugs is not a life-threatening issue. But detoxification from alcohol is a life-threatening issue. Uh, somebody that both Chris and I listen to occasionally uh, threw out the fact that 15% uh, of all alcoholics have the DTs, and 15% of all alcoholics who get the DTs die. So it's a significant factor to keep in mind uh, in dealing with uh, uh, someone who's perhaps still drinking. So again, it was assumed that you would go to the hospital. So this booklet is intended to be a practical guide for new members and sponsors of new members of Alcoholics Anonymous. To the sponsor, if you have never before brought anyone into LA, this booklet attempts to tell you what your duties are by your baby. They used to call them babies. Um, how you should conduct yourself while visiting patients and other odd bits of information, some of which may be new to you. What's interesting about the whole concept of baby um, pigeon started soon after that was that it never was a demeaning expression. It was always said with affection for someone who was new. So it, it's not, it was never meant to be sort of a put down. It was just a description uh, that had affection associated with it. So as if your community has a hospital, either private or general, that has not accepted alcoholic patients in the past, it might be profitable to call on the officials of the, of the institution and explain Alcoholics Anonymous to them. Now this is interesting. Explain that we are not in the business of sobering up drunks merely to have them go on another bender. Explain that our, our aim is total and permanent sobriety. Definition of an Alcoholics Anonymous. An Alcoholics Anonymous is an alcoholic who through application of an adherence to rules laid down by the organization has completely forsworn the use of any and all alcoholic beverages. Now notice this. The moment he wittingly drinks so much as a drop of beer, wine, spirits, or any other alcoholic drink, he automatically loses all status as a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. A is not interested in sobering up drunks who are not sincere in their desire to remain completely sober for all time. A is not interested in alcoholics who want to sober up merely to go on another bender. Sober up because of fear for their jobs, their wives, their social standing, or to clear up some trouble, either real or imagined. In other words, if a person is genuinely sincere in his desire for continued sobriety for his own good, is convinced in his own heart that alcohol holds him in its power and is willing to admit that he is an alcoholic, members of alcoholics will do all in their power, spend days of their time to guide him to a new and a happy and contented way of life. Experience has proven in hundreds of cases that unless an alcoholic is sobering up for a purely personal and selfish motive, he will not remain sober for any great length of time. He may remain sober for a few weeks or a few months, but the moment that the motivating element, usually fear of some sort, disappears, so disappears sobriety. A word to the sponsor, who is putting his first newcomer into the hospital and otherwise introducing him to this way of life. You must fulfill all pledges you make to him, either tangible or intangible. If you cannot fulfill a promise, do not make it. It is definitely your job to see that he has visitors, and you must visit him frequently yourself. This is talking about being in the hospital. If you hospitalize a man and then neglect him, he will naturally lose confidence in you. This is a very critical time in his life. He looks to you for courage, hope, and comfort and guidance. He fears the past. He is uncertain of the future. And he is in a frame of mind that the least neglect on your part will fill him with resentment and self-pity. You have in your hands the most valuable property in the world, the future.
future of a fellow man. Uh, please consider that today as well. Treat his life as carefully as you would your own. You are literally responsible for his life. You should make it a point to supply your patient with proper literature. The big book, Alcoholics Anonymous, this pamphlet, and other available pamphlets, a Bible, and anything else that has helped you. Impress upon him the wisdom and necessity of reading and rereading this literature. The more he learns about AA, the easier the road to recovery. Well, this one's cool. Remember, you depend on a newcomer to keep you sober as much as he depends on you, so never lose touch of your responsibility. And then the pamphlet goes on to talk about uh, new members getting involved in visiting hospitals, helping people newer than himself, and it gives some information about meetings. So that's the Akron pamphlet. Um, speaking of Akron and Dr. Bob, here's a couple of interesting facts about Dr. Bob. Him and his wife were engaged for 18 years before they got married. I don't know why, but I like that. Uh, for those of you that don't know, you will never ever see a picture of Dr. Bob when he wasn't wearing a long sleeve shirt. Uh, something that he wasn't exactly proud of was that Dr. Bob had two tattoos. Uh, he had a huge 32 point compass on one of his arms as well as a really large dragon. So he always wore a long sleeve shirt because uh, uh, he just never wanted anybody to see that. It's interesting because I want to talk to his son because I'd like to get some specifics on it but I haven't gotten a chance to so I want to do that sometime soon. Now I'm going to get into the Cleveland pamphlet, but just a, a fact about Cleveland AA. The first few years after the big book came out, bless you, Cleveland and, and uh, the Clarence contingent had a higher recovery rate than Dr. Bob and Bill Wilson combined. I have some statistics here from 1941, and it talks about... It talks about in uh, October 1st, 1940, there were 150 members in New York City. There was 200 members in Akron and 450 members in Cleveland, Ohio. For the first almost 10 years, the amount of people that were in our fellowship, almost half of them were in Cleveland. And because of that, many people in Cleveland thought that that was where it actually started. Now, the very first meeting that called itself Alcoholics Anonymous did occur in Akron, or it did occur in Cleveland. But, you know, certainly I didn't begin there. You know, Bill and Bob had started years before all that. So, uh, it's just kind of interesting. Now, uh, the Cleveland people, as you can see, were very successful. But they took test that work very seriously, and this story reflects that. In Cleveland, where the recovery technique used by Clarence S. was so successful that in the early 1940s they had a higher recovery rate than Bill and Dr. Bob combined, I read stories of how certain things were handled that describe how serious they were about 12-step work and how they protected our fellowship. Sometimes, if men were womanizing or weren't serious about doing what was necessary to recover from alcoholism and were disturbing the meetings, they were put into a car, were driven 25 miles out of town, dropped off and were asked not to return until they were serious about overcoming alcoholism and then they were forced to walk home. <laughs> There are times that I've wanted to do that today, to be honest with you. Okay, now here's the, uh, the, the, uh, the Clarence slash Cleveland sponsorship pamphlet that came out in 1944. And just a couple tips that it mentions in there. It says, each member of Alcoholics Anonymous is a potential sponsor of a new member and should clearly recognize the obligations and duties of such responsibility. The acceptance of an opportunity to take the AA plan to a sufferer of, alcohol, of alcoholism entails very real and critical importance.
burden responsibilities. Each member undertaking the, the sponsorship of a, a fellow alcoholic must remember that he is offering what is frequently the last chance at rehabilitation, sanity, and maybe life itself. Again, they took it very seriously, and I'd like to suggest that we should today also. Health, happiness, security, sanity, and life of human beings are the things we hold in balance when we sponsor an alcoholic. Now, these are the personal gains of being a sponsor. No one reaps full benefits from a fellowship he is connected with unless he wholeheartedly engages in its important activities. Any AA who has not experienced the joys and satisfactions of helping another alcoholic regain his place in life has not yet fully realized the complete benefits of our fellowship. On the other hand, it must be clearly kept in mind that the only possible reason for bringing an alcoholic into AA is for that person's gain. Until an individual has assumed the responsibility of setting a shaking, helpless human being back on the path toward becoming a healthy, useful, happy member of society, he has not enjoyed the complete thrill, complete thrill of being an AA. And it talks about qualifying an alcoholic. Some of the early pamphlets uh, talk about that again and again, and even the big book talks about that. It says, uh, qualifying the alcoholic. Potential members should be contacted as soon as all the facts such as marital status, domestic relations, financial status, drinking habits, employment status, and others readily obtained are at hand. Much time and effort can be saved by learning as soon as possible uh, these four things. Does the man really have a drinking problem? Does he know that he has a problem? Does he want to do something about his drinking? And does he want help? Those are the four questions in qualifying someone. Sometimes the question... To the, sometimes the answers to these questions cannot be made until the prospect has had some AA instruction and an opportunity to think. Often we are given names which upon investigation show the prospect is in no sense an alcoholic or is satisfied with, the pre, with his present plan for living. We should not hesitate to drop these names from our list. Be sure, however, to let the man know where he can reach us at a later date. In some instances, an individual might believe himself to be a social drinker when he definitely is an alcoholic. Rushing such a man before he is ready might ruin his chances of ever becoming a successful AA. Do not ever deny future help by pushing too hard in the beginning. And that's some good advice for today also. Experience has shown that age, intelligence, education, background, or the amount of liquor that they drank has little, if any, bearing on whether or not a person is an alcoholic. Suggested steps. The following paragraphs outline a suggested procedure for presenting the AA plan for the prospect at home or in the hospital. Again, uh, qualify as an alcoholic. In calling upon a new prospect, it has been found best to qualify oneself as an ordinary person who has found happiness, contentment, and peace of mind through AA. Immediately make it clear to the prospect that you are a person engaged in the routine business of earning a living. Tell him you, your only reason for believing yourself able to help him is because you yourself are an alcoholic and have, any, have experiences and problems that might be similar to his. So that's the first point. The second point is tell your story. Many members have found it desirable to launch immediately into their personal drinking story as a means of getting the confidence and wholehearted cooperation of their prospect. Again, you know, it mentions that in the big book as well. It is important in telling the story of your drinking life to tell it in a manner that will describe an alcoholic rather than a, serious, than a series of humorous drunken parties. This will enable the man to get a clear picture of an alcoholic, which should help him more definitely decide whether he is one, whether he is one either, whether he is one too. Then the third point is inspire confidence in AA. 
In many instances, the prospect will have tried various means of controlling his drinking, including hobbies, churches, changes of residence, changes of associations, and various control plans to relate to that. These will, of course, have been unsuccessful. Point out your series of unsuccessful efforts to control your drinking. Their absolute fruitlessness, their absolute fruitless results, and yet that you were able to stop drinking through application of AA principles. This will encourage the prospect to look forward with confidence to sobriety in AA, in spite of the many past failures he might have had with other plans. Then the fourth point is talk about plus values. Tell the prospect frankly that he cannot quickly understand all the benefits that are to come in him through AA. Tell him of the happiness, peace of mind, health, and in many cases material benefits which are possible through understanding and application of the AA way of life. Then the fifth point is show the importance of reading the big book. Um, explain the necessity of reading and rereading the AA book. Point out that this book gives a detailed description of the AA tools and the suggested method of application of these tools to build a foundation of rehabilitation for living. This is a good time to emphasize the importance of the 12 steps and the four absolutes. Then the sixth point is qualities required for success in AA. Convey to the prospect that the objectives of AA are to provide the ways and means for an alcoholic to remain, to regain his normal place in life. Desire, patience, faith, study, and application are most important in determining each individual's plan of action in gaining full benefits of AA. And perhaps that's a statement that we can ask if, if we're participating in that currently. Then uh, the seventh point is introduce faith. Since the belief of a power greater than oneself is the heart of the AA plan, and since this idea is very often difficult for a new person, the sponsor should attempt to introduce the beginnings of an understanding of this all-important feature. Frequently, this can be done by the sponsor relating his own difficulty in grasping a spiritual understanding and the methods he used to overcome his difficulties. The eighth point is to listen to his story while talking to the newcomer. Take time to listen and study his reactions in order that you can present your information in a more effective manner. Let him talk to, remember, easy does it. Uh, you'll notice as we go through this, again, it's a little bit different where what they're describing here is that the sponsor adapts himself to the sponsee, not the other way around, like it's sometimes suggested in our fellowship today. The ninth point is take them to several meetings. To give the new member a broad and complete picture of AA, the sponsor should take him to various meetings within convenient distance of his home. Attending several meetings gives a new person a chance to select a group in which he will be most happy and comfortable. And it is extremely important to let the prospect make his own decision as to which group he will join. Impress upon him that he is always welcome at any meeting and can change his home group if he wishes to do so. Then the tenth point, is, the tenth and kind of last point is explain AA to the prospect's family. Uh, a successful sponsor takes pains and makes any required effort to make certain that those people closest and with the greatest interest in the prospect, like a mother or father or wife or family, are fully informed of AA, its principles and its objectives. The sponsor sees that these people are invited to meetings and keeps them in touch with the current situation regarding the prospect at all times. And then it closes the pamphlet by saying, consult older members in AA. These suggestions for sponsoring a new man in AA teach, uh, teachings are by no means complete. They are intended only for a frame, framework and general guide. Each individual case is different and should be treated as such. Additional information for sponsoring a new person can be obtained from the experience of older people who have done the work. 
A co-sponsor with, with an experienced and newer member working on a prospect has proven very satisfactory. Before undertaking the responsibility of sponsoring, a member should make certain that he is able and prepared to give the time, effort, and thought such an obligation entails. It might be that he will want to select a co-sponsor to share the responsibility, or he might feel it necessary to ask anyone to assume the responsibility for the man he has located. And then at the end it says, if you are going to be a sponsor, be a good one. Now, those are the first two of the three pamphlets that I want to touch upon. And um, I'm wondering if anybody noticed the, the one single most important thing that was never mentioned in either one of those pamphlets, the working of the steps. Now, why do you think that is? This next pamphlet explains why. Before I get into it, uh, let me tell you a little story about Sister Ignatia, which for me was kind of funny. Uh, Sister Ignatia worked with Dr. Bob for and many years after Dr. Bob, and she had a real love for, for helping alcoholics. She had been working in the alcoholic ward all day and, and kind of wasn't having a good day because the alcoholics were kind of acting up that day, and she really just wasn't in a very good mood. And as she was walking by one of the beds, uh, one of the alcoholics grabbed her by the skirt and kind of halted her and said, Sister, please pray for me. And she turned around and kind of snapped at him and said, Pray for yourself. God bless you from strangers. Okay, now this is a pamphlet that she wrote. She wrote this in 1950. Um, it's called The Care of Alcoholics by Sister M. Ignatia. And here's a couple points that this pamphlet points out. The patient was very cautiously admitted with the diagnosis of acute gastritis under the care of Dr. Bob. Uh, as maybe some of you don't know, alcoholism wasn't recognized as a disease at this time, so you couldn't uh, bring somebody into a hospital under the guise of he has alcoholism because that just wasn't an accepted kind of thing back then. Since Dr. Bob came to the admitting office and very timidly requested that the patient be brought to a room where men could come and visit with the new man and talk privately. It was then that he received his first AA visitors. The men who came to visit him were such respectful, dignified-appearing men that we could hardly believe that they had ever been addicted to alcohol. The alcoholic word was not a great problem. An important point is that a new man is helped out of his street clothes and into hospital attire by other patients in the ward. The advantage for the new patient is that, from the first, he is in the care of understanding friends. The advantage for the older patients who perform this duty is that they are best able to see themselves again as they were upon admission. So it keeps their, their memory green or just, you know, they want to be helpful because they remember what it was like because they, they stole in the hospital. Administratively, an economy is affected by eliminating the need for hard-to-get employees who, you know, very often don't want to do it. People are half drunk, where the alcoholics were very willing to help out in those cases. Bear in mind, bearing in mind always that the alcoholic is a person who is sick spiritually as well as physically. The ready access he is given to a source of spiritual healing is a powerful factor in his recovery. It could be stated that the mechanical operation of the Lord is almost wholly self-operating. The cleaning of ashtrays, the making of coffee, which is in operation 24 hours a day, and uh, some things never change with the whole coffee thing. The washing of coffee cups, all this is done by the patients themselves. Usually they welcome these small opportunities to busy themselves and must keep their minds off their problems. Activity eliminates brooding, and the volume of such work is never great at any one time. So they basically just took care of themselves in the ward. The function of the lounge is to provide a place where a patient could chat with AA visitors and listen to informal talks. The secondary value, but the most important one to the older established AA members, 
is that by visiting new AA patients, the older members help to perpetuate their own sobriety. The AA visitors perform a multitude of chores for the current patients. Sometimes they secure a job or effect a family re reconciliation or pacify a creditor pressing for payments of a bill. These and other services are done by AAs for the dual purpose of showing true spiritual brotherhood and as a means of perpetuating and ensuring their own sobriety. So again, uh, talk about going ending rents. Hospital procedure. We begin where reality begins for the alcoholic. Reality for the alcoholic is drinking. It is most important that the approach be made through another alcoholic, perhaps a sponsor. The sponsor speaks the language of the alcoholic. He knows, quote-unquote, all the tricks of the trade because of personal experience. Those of us who have anything to do with admitting these patients would do well to have the humility to rely upon the judgment of a sponsor. Let him decide when the patient is ready for the program. We do not accept repeaters. A little bit on the harsh side. Although insurance is turning that way now. Sponsors know this. Hence, they are very careful to qualify the person before bringing them into the hospital. Above all, he must have a sincere desire to stop drinking. The role of the sponsor is not an easy one. He tries to appease an exacerbated or exasperated wife, talks to an employer, landlord, creditors, and others. He explains the program, tells them that this is not simply another sobering up process. This time he is being treated not only physically, but morally and mentally as well. The sponsor assures that with God's grace, their cooperation and the help of his fellow AAs, his charge will be given a real opportunity to make a complete recovery. And then she gets into what happens on each day. Uh, the process back then was that you were in the hospital for five days. Now this is day one. The patient is admitted to the hospital. After registration, the sponsor escorts his patient to the AA ward. Again, the ward is virtually self-governing. Two or three of the senior patients of the ward take over and welcome the new patient. They check his clothes and prepare him for bed. Many of these patients are in such good condition that they sit in the lounge and join in in conversation. Nothing is left undone to make the new man feel at home. This reception inspires hope in his heart. It also gives the AA members a splendid opportunity of doing 12-step work, namely helping others. So that's day one. The second day, excuse me, the second day, the day of recognition. The alcoholic is ill in body, mind, and soul. Hence, we begin with the physical care. The physical condition of the patient is usually much improved by the second day. In mind, his mind begins to clear. He feels encouraged because everyone seems interested in him. AA members call on him, tell him, this is how I made it. Some of the visitors may be men with whom he used to drink. The power of example is a great incentive to this patient. He begins to say to himself, if they can do it, so can I. But how am I going to make it? At this point, he generally has a heart-to-heart -heart talk with his sponsor. He acknowledges his utter powerlessness over alcohol. He honestly admits that he has tried innumerable times to drink normally and has always failed. He is finally ready, honestly and humbly, to admit defeat. His sponsor is delighted to know that his patient is really honest about his drinking. The sponsor says, we can help you since you are humble and honest. This is the grace of God at work in the soul of the patient, to admit helplessness and seek help outside of himself. This may be the first time the patient has admitted the fact that he is powerless to help himself. The next step is humbly to turn to God, ask and you shall receive. Patients have often said, this is the first time they sincerely prayed. The Our Father takes on a new meaning at this point. They feel that they really belong. Now this is day three, the day of moral inventory. So you can see the process of the steps being processed 
just days into it, before they even get out of the hospital. Day three, the day of moral inventory. The patient makes a searching and fearless moral inventory. He faces the past and honestly admits to God, to himself, and to another human being the exact nature of his wrongs. He is finished with alibis and reservations. I am an alcoholic. What a joy to be honest. The truth will make him free. Now he is sincerely asking God's help and the help of his fellow man. Now it says the fourth day, the day of resolution. Give us this day our daily bread. This is interpreted by the alcoholics to mean, I sure can stay sober today. This is usually followed by an act of complete surrender to God. The past is finished. I am heartily sorry. I'll try to make amends. This means confession, repentance, and firm purpose of amendment. Many men return to their religious practices after years of negligence. Now, with God's help and the help of his fellow AAs, with his clear thinking, he can control his feelings and emotions a whole lot better. Reason now governs his life. Strong conviction are given him as to why he cannot take the first drink. He has learned from his fellow alcoholics that it is more blessed to give than to receive and that it is a privilege to help others. Again, ask yourself if you have that opinion today. What a joy, too. He is kept so busy helping others that he does not have time to even think about drinking. What a, what a transformation takes place in the lives of these men and women. Now, here's the fifth day, plans for the future. As he, bless you, as he leaves the hospital, he must now face his problems. The way has been paved by the sponsor. The future is in God's hands. He has learned to say, God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. He is urged to guard against pride, self-pity, resentment. Again, he is urged to guard against pride, self-pity, resentment, intolerance, and criticism. Criticism of others. To, to attend meetings, to do 12-step work, and to visit the hospital. Before leaving the hospital, the patient is given the book, uh, Following of Christ by Thomas A. Kempis. During his stay in the hospital, he learns the significance of the little sacred heart badge. He requests one with a thorough understanding of conditions implied that he, it must be returned before he ever takes a drink. These people are seeking truth. In other words, they are thirsty for God. So you can see almost all the steps being done in the hospital, and then when they get out of it, they're encouraged. And what the pamphlets are about is helping other people go to meetings and learn to deepen and broaden their spiritual life that they've now established when they were in the hospital in the first place. Now, just to uh, remove the burden that I see on everybody's face, uh, this is the first 13th step, which always piques my interest. There was a man we shall call Victor. Uh, in going to Akron a few times, what I found out was his name wasn't Victor, it was Mitch, who was a former mayor of Akron, which actually isn't true. And a lady we shall call Lil, and Lil's name was actually Elsie, who was the first woman to ever seek help in AA. Together, Victor and a lady known as Lil started out to write the 13th step long before the 12 steps were ever written. What is more, they say that it began in Dr. Bob's office, on his examination table, while he was at the city club engaged in his Monday night bridge card game. In any case, Victor decided it was time for him to go home, but Lou was loaded. So he called Ernie to explain his predicament. When Ernie arrived, he saw Lou grab a handful of little pills from Dr. Bob's cabinet. We started going around the examination table, and she was trying to get the pills in her mouth, Ernie recalled. Then she made a dive for the window. I caught her halfway out. She was strong as a horse and used some profanity I had never heard before or since. <laughs> uh, 
I got her fanned and Doc finally showed up. We told her, uh, we took her out to Ardmore Avenue, which is where Dr. Bob lived, and put her in a room in the basement. She stayed there for two or three days. She stayed there for two or three days, and then her people took her home. Of course, they were not too kind about it and thought we hadn't handled her right, but we felt we had done all we could for her when she wasn't helpful herself any. They say Dr. Bob was leery of anything to do with women alcoholics for a long time after, although he still tried to help as best he could with anyone who had a drinking problem. And Bill Wilson, speaking to Sue Windows, who was Dr. Bob's daughter, in the 1950s recalled how they were all scandalized by this episode. Well, as drunks, I don't know why we should have been, Bill said, but we felt that the performance of some of the early people coming in were disrupting us entirely. Lou, I guess, was absolutely the first woman that we had ever dealt with. Many groups have used to good advantage the sponsor system 
one of which is outlined below. Other methods followed by other groups, which will be outlined in subsequent issues. And what's interesting is, is that there were, there were no subsequent issues. <laughs> there were no articles after this about sponsorship in regard to this uh, particular issue. Uh, one of the points is that must have a friendly attitude toward the new member. If that is not possible, do not accept sponsorship. Keep in close touch by phone. See that the new member comes to many meetings and be there also. See that he meets people. Have older members talk to him. Do not encourage discussion of personalities. When the drunk goes on another goes to another sponsor with tales of persecution, if the second sponsor doesn't talk it over with the first sponsor, the issue becomes one of personalities, and the second sponsor will find that the slipper has outsmarted him. So it talks about when you switch sponsors, talk to the first one so that the sponsor, the sponsor doesn't do the, try to do the same stuff that he did with the first one that perhaps got him fired in the first place. Uh, don't listen to a lot of gossip by slippers. The second sponsor, so if he switches sponsors, again, the second sponsor of the same member shouldn't get in touch with the first sponsor and find out what has been done. What were the reactions of the slipper so that he can't pull the same stuff with the second sponsor? So it's kind of interesting. Uh, if the new member alibis about coming to meetings, and uh, after a short while, the sponsor should impress on him the importance of attendance at these meetings by both the husband and the wife. If you can't get him to come, then he has put you in a position where you cannot help him as he will not let you. So drop him. The seed has been planted. Redirect your energies elsewhere. Somewhere along the line, he'll be back when he wants AA. So some tips on that. It gets into the AA beginner classes, but I want to kind of skip past this kind of quickly. The beginner classes were basically, um, after the Jack Alexander article came out, Our members of alcoholics flooded AA to the point where one-on-one member, one-on-one sponsorship started to become impossible, um, especially in Cleveland and, and some of the the, the uh, you know the bigger towns where, where alcoholics just flooded in, and one-on-one sponsorship was basically impossible. So what they started were uh, beginner classes where before basically you would show up at a meeting for the first time, you would identify yourself as new, so people would come and talk to you. They would. Um, ask you a series of questions, tell you about alcoholism, verify from your own understanding and from their own understanding of whether you are an alcoholic or not. So, you know, like I mentioned earlier, they would verify whether you are an alcoholic or not through information from the big book and their understanding of alcoholism and stuff like that, to your own satisfaction as well as theirs. And then basically, you weren't allowed to go to any more meetings. You would go to these beginner classes, which was a series of four classes once a week for one hour. Uh, the first class was step one, the second class was steps two, three, five, six, seven, and eleven. At least in Minnesota, that's the way it was. The third class was steps four, eight, nine, and ten. And the fourth class was about step twelve. In other areas, they did it in order, where these, they kind of grouped them with the admission, the spiritual, the restitution, the inventory, and then working on the message. And after you went through those four classes, worked all twelve steps, your life changed, uh, you were now allowed to go to meetings because now you had something to share at meetings. Up until that point, you had nothing to offer at meetings because you didn't even know anything about the solution. You hadn't even experienced it yet. So uh, um, to deal with the influx of so many people coming in, they started these classes because 
it was so important to work the steps early, and you really didn't have a message to carry at meetings anyway because you had no solution. At least you didn't have AA solution for alcoholism. So you went through the steps in four weeks by showing up once a week by doing the beginner classes, and now you were kind of a full-fledged member, and now you can go to regular meetings because you had a message to carry. And there was a series of, uh, in Akron they did it, in Cleveland they did it. Uh, there were many areas that um, started with these beginner classes. And a, a flyer was read earlier uh, that talks about beginner classes that are going to be in Tawaka starting next Wednesday. And on that flyer it states that we're looking for help from people who have experience by doing the, the work out of the big book to access as temporary step sponsors with these five classes that we're going to be doing. Uh, very often, the last two classes we did, there were 180 people that showed up, and the other classes, 170 people that showed up, most of which went through the work. And we need help with people who have experience with the big book to uh, show up back as a temporary step sponsor. So we can use some help in Tawaka. This fire is back by the coffee pot. And I'd like to close with uh, my other favorite story in AA. This is called the Springfield 7. Um, this AA moment to remember was a police raid on the Springfield, Missouri AA Club on August 24, 1948. Here are some of the sordid details of this dastardly deed. Um, it, it didn't happen at this place, but very often if, if our meetings were like in a storefront or something like that, what they would put on the front of the storefront was Athletic Association because the local members knew that that stood for AA and that was Alcoholics Anonymous, but they didn't want to expose themselves, so they would kind of it was, almost, it was almost this hidden fellowship, you know what I mean? People didn't know what was going on there, you know? Who are these people showing up out of nowhere having these secret meetings and then leaving? Like, you know, it was just people in the area really just didn't know what it was. They probably thought it was the Russians or something, you know? Now, this is what happened in uh, Springfield, Missouri. The Springfield Police Department got an anonymous tip about commercialized vice, quote-unquote, at the AA club. Because, you see... A lot of the meetings back then were not discussion meetings or anything like that. Basically, they were just meetings where people could bring new people. They would have them once a week, and they would sit around waiting for a new person to show up. They would play cards. They would, they would just talk amongst themselves. They would hang out. Um, and it would just be a place to bring a new person. And when a new person came, again, they would qualify them, see if they were an alcoholic to their satisfaction as well as the AAs. So this was just kind of a place that they were hanging out waiting for new people to come in or waiting for people to bring new people in, you know, to sponsor them in. It says the Springfield police got an anonymous tip about commercialized vice, quote-unquote, at the AA club. So police staged an early morning raid, complete with seven officers and four patrol cars. The next day, newspaper headlines stated how six policemen boldly captured seven ex-anonymous poker players. There were ex-anonymous AAs after the police got through with them because it ended up in a newspaper putting their full name, their address, and what their occupation was. This is a little embarrassing. It says they netted approximately $28 in cash and chips from a 10-cent limit poker game. The game was played with chips. The only money on the table was $7 in change that had just been given to players who had purchased chips. The remainder of the money was in a basket beside the playing table. One AA gives this eyewitness account of the raid. Three, this is in the newspaper. This is like so funny. Three officers entered the room first. One of them shouted, don't touch that money. Don't touch anything. The AAs froze. Playing poker, one officer exclaimed. That, said one player, is obvious. A big game. Look at all those chips. 
One of the AAs tried to explain that there were 10 cent chips, but the officers weren't listening. Then three additional officers charged into the room, and the six policemen escorted the seven men out. Four police cars waited outside the club. One of two AAs were put in each car and driven to the station where they were booked. They were released only after posting a $350 cash bond. Later, they were tried and convicted of betting on games. The incident was described, this is what the newspaper said, the incident was described as a ludicrous display of authority. It was in the newspaper for days, on the front page, the editorial page, the talk of the town page, and the letters to the editor. One newspaper reporter provided this editorial comment. Speaking frankly, we think that the AA raid was a horrible mistake on the part of the arresting officers. We think that they did not know where they were going in the first place. That when they arrived there, they did not know the meaning of AA. That when they walked into the game, they did not recognize the players or conclude from their surroundings or their dress that they were persons of importance. Therefore, they were not disposed to listen to the efforts of the players who tried to explain. Another reporter was even more emphatic about his denunciation of the police action. I can't think of any pitch which causes less embarrassment to the pinchees and more embarrassment to the pinchers than this dazzling episode in the history of Springfield law enforcement. As a blunder, it was brilliantly conceived and beautifully executed. Sheer genius working in reverse with incredible skill. The full names, ages, addresses, and occupations of the AA criminals were published in the paper. The Springfield 7 were Ray D, who was a golf range operator. He was 38 years old. William L was 38. He was a member of an abstract company. Orion S was 43, who was a restaurant operator. James H was 31. Um, he was a salesman. Harold P was 37, was a meat cutter. Harold B was 34, and was a septic tank cleaner. <laughs> Charles C was 46, who was uh, a musician. What's interesting about all that is that they all had jobs, which you know, with the low bottom early AAs, that's kind of uh, an interesting statistic. Among others, James H and Ray and Ann D wrote letters to the editor. This is what uh, James D had to say. Oh, I'm sorry, James H. Since I am one of the notorious gamblers captured in this daring raid, and considering the widespread interests shown in this case, I have decided that my eyewitness account of the story may be of some interest to you. As I try to reconstruct the scene, I think I had just called a 10-set bet made by one of the more reckless players when a voice about two feet behind me snarled, don't touch a thing. I whirled around to see a cop with a flashlight in hand aimed directly at us. It was one of those eight-cell flashlights. I guess it was important to mention that, that uh, fact. He had the seven of us at bay with his deadly weapon until two more officers moved into position and had us completely surrounded. Such pay, since paying my fine, I have given the matter considerable thought, and I have drawn my own conclusions. The raid, although a masterpiece of police efficiency, was not only an utter waste of time, but outright stupid. William M.D. wrote in a newspaper and quoted the following. This is kind of funny. And then it closes with one of the most incredible pieces I've ever read about two people's passion for AA that, that I really love. Now, this is what uh, Ray and Ann wrote. This is sort of tongue-in-cheek, so keep that in mind. It says, uh, speaking for ourselves, and believe we express the sentiment of many other Springfield members of Alcoholics Anonymous, we'd like to say thanks to personal friends of AA for a most kindly and good-natured understanding of our belief, of our brief and unfortunate tangle with the city police. And then he goes on to say, yes, 
We know where there is a poker game tonight. And no, we're not going to pay up a suit against the city to get our poker chips back. And yes, we've 